so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the ERLC podcast. Join us as we listen to Russell Moore. We have a confidence that is based upon the advance of the kingdom of God. That means that we are the people who are not losers. And so we do not act with the frantic thrashing about that losers do. We know the power of the kingdom and where it comes from. Jesus says, my kingdom's not from this world. I don't need to fight you that way. And Jesus says, I have come to do what? To bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. In the summer of 2015, Russell Moore addressed thousands of church leaders and planters in Nashville, Tennessee, about engaging the culture with the convictional kindness of the gospel. We hope you enjoy this timely message. Amen. Would you turn in God's Word to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. John 18, and I'd like for us to read verses 28 through 40. John 18, 28 through 40. And since these words are the words of God, breathed out by the Holy Spirit, would you please stand with me out of reverence for the voice of our King? The Holy Spirit says, through John. Then the religious leaders led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, and they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, 
what is truth. After he'd said this, he went back outside to the religious leaders and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So who do you want me to release to you, the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Let's pray. Father God, we know that we are standing here right now, not simply in this arena, as filled as it is, but Father, we are standing in a bigger multitude right now because we cannot see what's all around us. Myriads and myriads of angels, the redeemed of all of the ages, the heavenly Mount Zion. And Father, we wish to confess with that number that no man can number, Jesus Christ is Lord. And so, Father, would you speak to us right now by your word? Would you strip away from us anything that is not Christ-shaped? And would you conform us into the image of Christ that he might be the firstborn among many brothers? And we ask this in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Several years ago, I got myself into a little bit of trouble in a church foyer. I don't know if you've ever been there before where after you've been preaching or teaching and somebody comes up and they're upset. But this had happened early in my ministry when a church in the Deep South had asked me to come in and to preach all the way through 1 Corinthians. They wanted a a Bible study that would look all the way through that biblical book. And so every night I would come in and teach on 1 Corinthians, and I, I got to the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where the Apostle Paul says, uh, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so I'm, I'm trying to explain this and to make a point of application. And I said, you know, there's really no reason, for instance, to put yourself in a place of temptation, of being involved in, a, in an engagement that just goes on and on and on. When you found the person that you want to marry, go ahead and get married. No need to date and date and date and date and date. Date with a purpose and then marry. Well, after the service, a middle-aged couple came up, and they were mad as can be. And they had with them Chad and Tina. And Chad was their son. And this middle-aged couple said, oh, but Brother Moore, you shouldn't have said what you said. It was a distraction. She said, you were teaching so well through 1 Corinthians, but when you got there, you just don't understand the situation with Chad and Tina. The mother said, Chad and Tina have been engaged for four years. And they were dating for years before that. And she said, you know, we're the ones who've been encouraging them to do this because we really want Chad to finish graduate school and to get a job and to get a a permanent place in his occupation and to be able to buy a house. And we want Tina to be able to finish her graduate school and, and, and go through and get her job and get established in her career. And so they're engaged for four years and they may be engaged for a couple years more. And we think that's a good situation for them. And I said, well, just hear me. I wasn't trying to set a rule for Chad and Tina. I'm just giving you basic application of this text. I said, I just think we all ought to thank God that by his grace and mercy, he's enabled Chad and Tina to be able to withstand the temptation 
to sexual immorality. Right, Chad? And after a few really awkward minutes, everyone just kind of slinked away to our cars. And it hit me that night that for this Bible-believing, church-attending, missions-giving, middle-aged couple, it was more terrifying to them to contemplate that their son might be an economic failure than it was to contemplate that their son might be sexually immoral. That's not just their problem. The most dangerous questions that face us are not the questions that we see debated all over Facebook. The most dangerous questions that we face are the questions we are not asking because it never occurs to us to ask them because our situation just seems normal. And in order to understand that, we need to come back to the night that is at the crux of our mission. The interrogation of Jesus before the governor, before Pilate. And the governor here is representing the Roman Empire. He's representing political power. He's representing the, the might of the sword. And he is asking questions that all of us need to hear if we are going to be the people of Christ moving into the 21st century. And the primary question that we should ask when we come to this text is where do we stand here? Well, I would suggest to you that, first of all, we stand with Jesus in the priority of the kingdom. When Pilate brings Jesus forward and he starts talking to him, Pilate's problem is primarily political. He's got a political problem that he wants to manage. On the one hand, he has his subjects who are really upset. They're demanding justice. They're saying that this Jesus is a blasphemer and that this Jesus is a threat and this Jesus is, is claiming to be a king. He doesn't want a problem with them. But Pilate also doesn't want a problem from his bosses. He doesn't want a problem from Rome. If he has someone who is claiming to be a king and might potentially be an insurrectionist or a terrorist, then that will be a problem for the empire and a problem for him. And so he brings Jesus forward and he says, are you a king? Are you the king of Israel? And Jesus' response is telling. Jesus says, my kingdom is not from this world. Now, notice what Jesus did not do. Jesus did not say, my kingdom has nothing to do with the world. He did not say, my kingdom is not coming into the world. As a matter of fact, earlier in this very book, John 3 tells us that God sent his son because God loves the world. That the light has come into the world and the darkness cannot overcome it. Jesus says, my kingdom and my reign is coming from a different source. It doesn't originate here. It doesn't originate with all of the things that you're worried about. 
It doesn't originate with all of your structures. It is coming from the outside and it is different. And when Pilate is talking to Jesus, he has to be laughing to himself. This doesn't look like a king. Everybody knows what a king looks like. A king has an entourage. A king has security. Here is a man who is arrested. Here is a man who has his hands behind his back. Here is a man who can easily be put to death. And yet what Jesus was saying at the moment is if you want to see the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is standing in front of you in person. If we are going to move on mission into the 21st century, we have to ask, where is Jesus ruling now? And the New Testament tells us that Jesus has created embassies of the kingdom, colonies of the kingdom, where Jesus is ruling by his word, where Jesus is ruling by bringing his people together. He is ruling in the church, and our churches are assigned to the outside world. If you want to know what the future looks like, come and see a picture of the future here. All of our efforts in our churches, regardless of how small or how big, these are all internships for the kingdom of God. The kingdom that is not coming with power, the kingdom that is not coming with wisdom as the world knows it, the kingdom that is not coming with influence as the world sees it, the kingdom that is coming through Jesus Christ. That means that your vote to receive new members into your church is more important than your vote for President of the United States. Your vote for President of the United States is important. But your vote on these new members into your congregation is more important still. Because my kingdom is not of this world. One day, the Washington Monument is going to be reduced to rubble. And one day, old glory is going to yield to a new creation. And the President of the United States, no matter who he or she is, has term limits. There are no term limits on joint heirs with Christ. And so as we see within our churches a flicker of this kingdom that Jesus is talking about, we ought to be the people who have the kingdom as our frame of reference, not 1950s America. We are not time travelers from the past. We are pilgrims from the future. And many of the reasons why Christians are often so frantic in contemporary American society is because we assume that we have lost something. We assume that we have a Christian America that has moved over into a post-Christian America, and all the while we are defining Christian in a very different way from the way Jesus defines it, you must be born again. We do not live in a post-Christian America 
at best, we live in a pre-Christian America. My kingdom is not from this world. And how do you know that? Jesus says you can see it in the way that we engage. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting right now. They would be using the very same weapons that you use in order to drive you back, but they don't. My kingdom is not from this world. The message that we have is a message that is distinctive including in the way that we live and including in the way that we engage. The days of trying to be normal in America should be over. And that's not only because we believe such wild and freakish things as that a man has been raised from the dead. It's not only because we believe that the Scripture mandates the way that we live out our lives in our ethics in ways that are incomprehensible to the culture around us. It ought to also be seen in the way that our churches are made up of people who are reconciled to God and reconciled to one another and who wouldn't necessarily have anything to do with one another if Jesus were still dead. If you want to see the church around the world have power and influence, the way that we have power and influence is to contextualize to the future, which means that that hotel maid, who doesn't speak very much English at all, is the one who is discipling the corporate CEO because she is rich in faith and an heir of the kingdom. And we are signaling to the outside world, if you want to see the future rulers of the universe, you do not diagnose them by this world's standards. You do so by the standards of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus stands there knowing that he is going to the place of the skull. He says, my kingdom is not from this world because Jesus understands that overshadowing all of this is the cross. There's a lot of prosperity gospel on television. There's a lot of prosperity gospel that's being exported from the United States of America all around the world. But you know, it's really hard to get these prosperity gospel books and to translate them into Arabic. It's really hard to hear a message that God approves of you based upon your bank account or based upon your influence in your community or based upon your health when you are impoverished and waiting for the sound of boots at the door to arrest you and maybe even to behead you. But that is the power that comes from people who are carrying a cross. My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is able to say this to Pilate 
because he has already said this to the devil in the temptation when the devil showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said, I have authority. I can give all of these things to you. Think about that for a minute. In a world governed not by the devil, but by Jesus of Nazareth, there would be no abortion. There would be no sex trafficking. There would be no malaria. There would be no pornography. There would be no war and famine. And yet Jesus does not receive that offer because he knows that the kingdom comes only through the blood of the cross. The devil does not fear traditional values. The devil does not fear social justice. The devil does not fear political power and influence. The devil fears only the blood of Christ. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, which brings him to a place of tranquility before Pilate. Jesus is not frantic. Jesus is not hand-wringing. Jesus is not outraged. How different Jesus is standing before his cultural power than so many American Christians are standing before ours. That's because Jesus here is not driven by paranoia. He is not driven by a victim mentality. He is driven by a confidence that says to Pilate, you have no authority over me that was not granted to you by my father. And that is seen later on in this account in the Gospel of Matthew in what I think is the most hilarious line in all of Scripture. When the guards come to Pilate and say, we're afraid they're going to try to steal his body. And Pilate says, go to the tomb and make it as secure as you can. The earliest manuscripts include, yeah, good luck with that. (laughs) We have a confidence that is based upon the advance of the kingdom of God. That means that we are the people who are not losers, and so we do not act with the frantic thrashing about that losers do. We know the power of the kingdom and where it comes from. Jesus says, my kingdom's not from this world. I don't need to fight you that way. And Jesus says, I have come to do what? To bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Not with swords, not with tanks, not with power, but with with a voice. You know, I know all sorts of people who've come to Christ for all sorts of different reasons. I have never met one person yet who has come to faith in Christ because he lost an argument on Twitter. I've never met anybody who's come to Christ after being humiliated on Facebook. Jesus says, I bear witness 
to the truth. And as we bear witness to the truth, the voice of Christ is heard. If we speak what Jesus has given us to say, and if we speak it the way that he speaks it. We're not simply to deliver Christian truths. We're to deliver Christian truths with a Christian accent. So that the people who hear us hear not only the content, but they hear the voice of Jesus, come and follow me. That gives us the sort of confidence that Jesus has as the person who is the most uncaffeinated figure in the New Testament. We plead for reconciliation. And we do not frantically hold on to something that we think we're losing. We march forward into the future with the power of the gospel itself. We stand with Jesus because kingdom first. But notice, though, that we don't simply stand with Jesus here. We also stand with the world in accountability for justice. The gospel didn't come out of Mayberry and does not need Mayberry to sustain it. But it's really easy for us to turn around and to say with our commitment to the priority of the gospel, thank you, God, that I am not last generation's television evangelist. The irony in this text is that the people who want to see Jesus crucified avoid going into Pilate's house, John says, because they don't want to be impure so that they are not able to eat the Passover. All the while that they are manipulating the political process, they are pretending as though they are distant from the political process and somehow pure from it. And as they do so, they become even more political than this pagan governor. They even use political rhetoric. If you don't put him to death, they say, you are no friend to Caesar. They knew that that was a plumb position that Pilate would want. They knew that this would make Pilate nervous, that somehow he would be removed or even arrested if he was seen to be on the other side of Caesar. And this this distancing themselves from politics made them so hyper-political that at the very end they are crying for Barabbas, a word that means the son of the father. They are asking for a Messiah, a son of the Father, so much so that later on in this very same chapter, they will scream out, we have no king but Caesar. They're avoiding the appearance of political engagement while becoming political captives. And just as it is easy for people to avoid legalism, by setting up rule after rule after rule about not having rules to the point that they out-legalize the legalists. It is also easy to replace a television evangelist activism with a slaveholder's ethic. 
Some would say, don't speak about issues of justice. Simply talk about mission and the gospel. If you're in 1856 Alabama and you say nothing about slavery, you are speaking to slavery. You are baptizing the status quo. If you are serving in 1925 Mississippi and you call for repentance for adultery and you call for repentance for drunkenness and you say nothing about the lynching of human beings, you are speaking to the lynching of human beings because you are baptizing the status quo by giving the impression there is nothing here to repent of. And right now, as you and I are in this room, there's probably a young woman in Asia waiting for a knock at the door from an American businessman who has paid less than he paid for a steak last night to do unspeakable things to her. Right now, while you and I are gathered in this arena, there are children torn apart and placed in bags marked medical waste. Right now, while we're in this arena, there are children moving from foster care home to foster care home to foster care home and being told no one will love you, no one will ever receive you. If you think that is a distraction to the mission, then what you are distracted from is Jesus himself. And that's especially true when we're living in a time when the culture has changed and the government has changed in such a way that with a stroke of a pin, lifting tax exemption, the state can put itself in charge of the churches and the mission agencies and the religious communities of this country in a way in which the state can then shut down those who will not comply with the state. The gospel would still go forward. We hold to that promise on the basis of Caesarea Philippi. But we are held accountable as those who exist in a system of government where, Romans 13, the ones who bear the sword are ultimately the people. The question for us is not just, are we going to be persecuted? The question is, are we going to be persecutors? When the guards and the tax collectors and the centurions came to John the Baptist and said, how do we carry out our offices now, now that we've received this message of repentance? John doesn't give them a detailed program, but he tells them how to act justly. And the question that we have as those who now have citizenship in a free republic is how will we wield the sword of justice that has been given to us in a way that is right and not in a way that harms. Like Pilate, we can simply wash our hands of that and say we're to 
busy, focused on spiritual matters to care about whether or not future generations will be bound by the decisions that we make right now. To not care about whether or not future mission fields will be impeded by the next generation of the church. We can spiritualize that in such a way that we become pilot and suggest even that God is our co-pilot. But the Apostle Paul appealed all the way to Caesar with his Roman citizenship, not because the Apostle Paul was consumed with power, but because the Apostle Paul wanted the freedom of the mission of the church to go forward. The early missionaries, William Carey, cared about widow burning, And Andrew Fuller appealed to the East India Company that had control over India for religious liberty and freedom for the missionaries there and to deal with issues of injustice there, not because Fuller was distracted from the mission, but because he was holding the rope for the mission to go forward. That's why the early Baptists in this country in their missions conferences in Massachusetts and Connecticut and Virginia, engaged with politicians with the technology that they had at the time, coming together and writing letters and waiting for letters to come back about religious freedom, not because they were looking for spiritual mascots and spiritual leaders. Thomas Jefferson was never qualified to lead a cell group Bible study in anybody's Baptist church. But they wanted to know, will you stand for freedom of conscience and soul liberty? That wasn't a break from the mission. That was ensuring the next generation's mission. The most dangerous questions that we face are the ones that we are not asking. But we're standing here in the place of Jesus, in a world that would love for us simply to adopt its priorities and to become political mascots for some party, some ideology. Our response is, Our kingdom is not of this world. But we also stand in the place of Pilate as those who have a responsibility and an accountability for a temporary kingdom that is of this world. It's a different day. The Bible Belt will not long be a safe haven for what they used to call traditional family values. And the church is realizing more and more that the culture doesn't greet us as liberators. The idea of a Christian America to most people in America is more of a threat than an ideal. And if we were ever a moral majority, it's hard to make the case that we are anymore. Let's not resuscitate the old civil religions. Let's work for something new, for something old, 
which is the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, gathered in churches of transformed people, reconciled to one another, on mission with one another, and holding forward to every tribe, tongue, and nation the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's avoid the temptation to keep saying the same stuff we've always said, except louder and angrier. And let's avoid the temptation of retreating into our subculture or disentangling the gospel from our concern for human well-being. It's our turn to march into the future, and we do so not as a moral majority, not as a righteous remnant, only as crucified sinners with nothing to offer the world except for a broken body and poured out blood and unceasing witness. And beside us there may be flags and we'll pledge allegiance where we ought and where we can. But over all of those flags, there's a cross. And we may not see where we're going But we know the way. We stand here with Jesus. And yet we stand here with Pilate. We will bear our responsibilities as citizens of this world. But we will always recognize that we are Americans best when we are not Americans first. And we will bear this responsibility with fear and with trembling, knowing that it is very, very hard to wash nail-scarred hands. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. Subscribe to this podcast to stay up to date on future episodes. If you'd like more information about Christians and cultural engagement, visit us online at erlc.com.